Women in Islam. This morning we're going to be thinking about women, women in Islam. I don't know quite why you're interested in the topic. Why would you like to study it? But as we think about it, we need to look at some more background information. What do you already know? What is your understanding? How do you see them? We're going to try to look at her life, her beliefs, her practices, and her expectations. Also, it's a good question to think, how do you feel about people of other faiths? Are you comfortable in relationship of talking with them? Or are you a bit upset when they talk about things differently than what you believe? Do you think that other faiths have truth? Some truth or no truth? Or you feel very strongly that they are wrong? We need to look at some of these questions as we deal with it. But let's also back up to a few general facts about Islam. Islam is a monotheistic faith with a very strong view in one God. God is known as Allah. That's the Arabic word for Allah, God. But in Persian or Urdu, he's called Khadar. The word Allah was known even before Islam because it was known by Arab Christians who used it. In fact, we know Muhammad's grandfather was called Muhammad Abdullah. The name was used as people's names. And so the word was very popular and very well known. Although sometimes we have the impression that it is an Islamic word itself. But probably it's just related also to the Hebrew word, El, the singular name of God. But who is God in Islam? Who is Allah? The Surah 112 tells us that he has no partners and that he begetteth not, or nor is he begotten. He is absolute and almighty. Yes, we're very happy also to say that God is absolute in power and almighty. But the phrase that he begetteth not, nor is he begotten, seems to refer to the fact that God has no partners. God has no son. He's very singular, uh, unit of one God. But then, who is God? Who is Allah? Is he the father of the Lord Jesus Christ? And does he have the same characteristics of the God of the Bible? We will look at these statements more throughout the time we are speaking. And another thing that's very popular is that God has many names. The Quran says he has beautiful names, and the popular interpretation is that he has 99. Uh, and some of those names are similar names that we use for God as well. I like to talk about some of the names of God with my friends as well. One of my favorite names, of course, is the name Jehovah. When Moses spoke with God, he asked him for his name, and God introduced himself as the I am, which sometimes is called Jehovah, or in many of our translations in English, we are seeing in our Bibles the word Lord written in capitals, and it refers to the personal name of God. And it is the name that appears about 6,000 times in the Old Testament. 
and it is a personal name and it's a name that speaks of relationship, the name that God gave to Moses and to other people to whom he spoke. Quran is important also. It is a book. Sometimes we speak of Islam as the, as the people of a book, but they also speak of Christians, the people of a book, and the Jews, the people of a book. And the Quran mentions that there were scriptures at the time that the Quran was given. There were scriptures that the Jewish people had, the Torah. There were scriptures that in Christians were meant to have. And then God gave a book to the Arabs in Arabic. And this book is very special because it came from heaven, an eternal book, and it has no human involvement, which like the Bible, we speak of the Bible as being written and that God used people to write his words down for other people. Whereas in the Quran, the book was already assumed to be already written. But of course, we might think of some other factors concerning that later as we talk about the Quran, what kind of book it really is. But there are some other things in the Quran that cause us to wonder about the things that it said. Because the Quran also says that God did not only have any partners, but that Jesus is not God and neither did he die on a cross, but he just went to heaven without dying. So the book is their guide and their authority for all of life. But how do we as Christians answer the questions in the book? And how do we answer questions with our Muslim friends? There is definitely going to be some clashes, some conflicts, some difficulties in sharing and talking with our Muslim friends. But it's not impossible, and it is quite a challenge, but something that we can do and can accept to do. Going back now to beginning to think about who are the Muslim women. Who are the women that you are meeting? Is there a typical Muslim woman? What does she look like? Can you recognize her? Of course, we nearly always recognize people who are wearing a headscarf, a hijab. And we recognize those who are wearing the long burqa or rather other long garments. And even those who veil the face, a meekab. We identify them because we've identified their clothes as Islamic clothes. But what about all the other Muslim women? Can you identify them? Do you see them and notice them? As a student, when I was teaching in Fez, we used to have quite a laugh. And I had a class at 8 o'clock. Most all the women students came with a long burqa and their headscarves. But that's because they still were wearing pajamas or all sorts of things underneath that they weren't presentable to and didn't have time to dress and put their makeup on. But if you had class at 10, 30, 11, or afternoon, all my women students usually came well-dressed, designer clothes, and lots of makeup, and looked very different than the girls who had come at 8 o'clock. And we had quite a number of jokes about it between the male students in the class about what they would look like at some times, whether they were zombies or whether they were dressed Many modern Muslim women don't wear any distinctive clothing that would identify them. Yet some do have a preference to wear uh, very modest clothing, or perhaps they have chosen to wear the veil on purpose. Sometimes the veil is a, 
Muslim symbol that they are giving themselves an identity. I'm British, but I'm Muslim. So they wear the headscarf. Not because they have to or because their parents or their husbands want them to wear that, but it's become somewhat of a marker, somewhat of a statement with the political overtones for the modern young women, especially those at university often. But yet many of them hold positions in the government, lawyers, judges, and women in the army wearing military garb and so forth. The other thing that is quite different for us to learn to understand is the culture of honor and shame. We often hear these words but don't quite understand how they work. Honor is what you give to the family. You honor your family, you honor your parents, you honor your husband. This might mean that you always do the kind of things that they would want you to do or at least you don't openly not do it. There's sometimes a difference between you honor them publicly, but what might happen on some occasions might be different. But you also honor the country and honor the religion. Uh, I remember a couple incidences that show how it works in some ways in that they had a tremendous flood and problems in Algeria. And they because Algeria is not so far from London, there was a plane which, as the newspaper said, came from a Christian country. And it got there before the plane from Saudi Arabia, so they didn't let them land. They sent them to some other small town on the other side of Algeria, nowhere near the flooded area. And then when the Saudi Arabians had arrived, the honor of the Islamic world, bringing honor to their brothers and sisters in trouble, then after that, the British plane was allowed to come back to the capital and land because no other Arab country could have been allowed to know that the Christians got there first and the honor of the brothers had not happened. And so different things are treated differently, which seem rather foolish to us maybe, but honor is much more important and relationship with people is more important than the actual objects of things that we are doing. But honor is also quite important when there are things that happen that are very seriously wrong, often in connection with moral sins and shame of adultery or shame of somehow in connection with marriage. And honor is only cleansed by blood. My friend and I were chatting about that in relation to the sacrifice of the lamb one time, and he told me that it's absolutely necessary to have blood because only blood can cleanse. And then he quoted me a Bible verse which he said, in the Quran it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Nothing can be cleansed. So we have to cleanse by killing and sacrifice. So seeing honor and truth through this lens might seem a different way of looking at it. But I think also you'll find if you look at the Old Testament, honor and shame are also very much a part of the Old Testament culture. If you think of the story of Adam and Eve, after they had eaten the fruit, it said that they were ashamed. They saw their nakedness and they hid. There was shame. And then when God came, there was also their sense of guilt. Many of the same 
parts of culture operated honor and shame and guilt and fear, all different cultural lenses through which we see evil and wrong and our relationship to God, all operated at the same time sometimes. And also, all of them are available. The cross of Jesus takes away shame and guilt and fear. All of them are cleansed through the death of Christ. So whichever cultural framework you are viewing, they are all dealt with in the cross of Jesus. So it's not a problem to look at things another way, and we will learn to deal with them through differences. Don't worry if you don't understand all these things at once. From time to time throughout talking about women, we will come back to various themes and explain them a bit again. But let's look just a little bit again at stereotypes. While we're trying to see who they are, they're also trying to see who you are. And they have many stereotypes of us as well. Often my students said to me, oh, you're like the people in Dallas. You've had several husbands, and they sometimes accuse us of being very immoral people, eating pigs and drinking and all sorts of things that would make us seem like very unmoral people as well. Or one of my women's friends said, oh, you're just caught up in the fashion and the beauty and lots of pressure that we don't have. So they also see us in different ways. But where are your friends from? I think it's good also to think a little bit about who we are meeting and who are they. The Muslim world is a very big world. Quite often we think of the Arabic-speaking world, but that's only a part of the Arab world, the Muslim world. North Africa and the Middle East certainly are a part of it, but they make up just a small part of it. And they are the Arabic speakers. And the Middle East is part of that world too. But then there's Turkey, which is another language group and a very different people groups. And then there's the Muslim world of the African countries and India and Pakistan. And we have as many languages as we have countries. So there are many different languages and there are many different countries and a variety of cultures within these countries. But it does seem sometimes as we think of the Muslim world that it is an Arab culture even in those other countries, that Islam comes with the coloring and the flavoring of the Middle East, of the desert of Saudi Arabia, and the people who believe in it who come from other cultures, are wearing the clothes and culture and the patterns of the people of the Middle East. One of the time I was speaking, and a Pakistani friend said to me, I think we've been taken over by Arabs. We have to read the Quran in Arabic, which is not our language. We have to pray in Arabic. And we've become like Middle Easterners. It's a kind of imperialistic thing that's happened to us. But many of them from other countries also, if you're going to understand the Quran, you will learn Arabic. And so part of being a Muslim is that you will probably go to school and learn to read the letters and some of the Quran while you're very small. And it's quite popular to go to the Quranic school first, and then later you will go to a government school to learn other subjects and reading and writing in maybe your own language beside Arabic. As we look at these things, 
we want to just look back and think, what have we been thinking about? People who believe in one God, a God who has no partners, a God who has many names, but what are his names and who is he? Is he personal? Have you talked with your Muslim friend about who is Allah or who is the God that they are knowing? Are they readers who read the Quran? And, and what did they know about the culture? Have they talked to you about honor and shame? So is, have you met a typical woman and what is she like? We'd just like to ask yourself some questions. Who is your friend and how would you speak with her? And what would you like to learn from her? Maybe you would like to ask her to teach you some of her language so that you can speak and express some expressions in her language as you talk with her. There are many things that we will talk about as we go on looking at her practices, her life, and her beliefs. If you learn a bit of Arabic, it often helps you to understand a bit more about the culture and about the religion as well. When I first went to North Africa, I went to live in Morocco. And Morocco has a very unique form of Arabic. Some other people have a way of saying it's not really Arabic. But of course, each Arab country thinks that theirs is the best form of the language. And of course, the view is that the Quran, the high form of Arabic, is even more perfect and a better and more beautiful language. But as I was in Morocco first, and I came in the summertime, I began to try to learn a little bit of it before the language school started. I had a great teacher called Fanida. Fanida said, the way you learn Arabic is from the people. So she said, we're going visiting. So she would take me to visit someone at their house. And the first couple of times she went with me and she talked, and I have no idea what was said, of course, and she talked and talked. And then after a couple of visits with her, one day when I was left in a house, she left. And she left me there uh, with people who I could hardly speak to. And they were talking to me and getting me to say things and to say words. And I did begin to learn some. And I began to visit people myself, little by little. But suddenly, after the summer ended, I went to the language school to learn. And my first few days at language school, I knew lots of things. But the teacher said, guess what? That's not even Arabic. You've learned Berber. They've all taught you Berber instead of Arabic. And quite often in the villages, the difference between Berber or Arabic muddles up together. And so I'd learned quite a few things, but it wasn't actually Arabic. But another thing that was often said day after day, my friends would say, you'll speak Arabic if you eat olives. And another person said, oh, no, olives won't do it. You have to drink lots of buttermilk. And so there was always some food that was going to help you to learn and speak Arabic better. It was quite interesting, all the different ideas that people had that would help you. And they would tell me. But one of the Arabic teachers I had also just told you so many things at once. And when he came back the next day, he expected that you would know all of it. And 
they found it quite interesting that we didn't just learn it fast and quickly because they don't have the kind of concept of their own language or sometimes they don't know really how to teach you. But I remember going to the park during this time, went to the park with a group of other Americans and we had some children with us and one was a baby in the pushchair and the little baby was just going, and the Arab women came past us and said, oh, those people can't speak Arabic, but the baby speaks Arabic quite fine. We've just heard her. She knows all the sounds of Arabic. And the ladies went away giggling about our lack of Arabic and how the baby spoke Arabic and not us. But language opens many doors and gives you a, also a kind of learning experience. Sometimes it's good that you don't have the language and you have time to learn about the people and learn to speak before you get yourself in all the things that are going on. But also it's quite fun to begin to adapt to things. But sometimes if you put on the clothes and look like you can speak Arabic, it might be a little bit of trouble because they will expect you to speak if you look the part. Just like you identify them wearing something they will identify you then assimilating deeper into the culture if you put on the garb. So you need to learn to speak as well if you're going to look the part. But it's a great fun and it's a great way to get to know people and a great way to make friends. And they love to help people. They find great fun in telling you and helping you. It's not a problem to get to know them and they're not embarrassed about it. And we also sometimes don't learn as well because we do feel inhibited or embarrassed. But ask your friends. Let them try teaching you and enjoy the experience of trying to learn some things from them. We can often learn things from other people even if they're not like us or believe like us. Their lives will enrich us as well as we long to enrich them by sharing Christ.